Hey guys, this is Doug. Thanks for listening to What's the Hazard. I want to recognize our incredibly generous sponsors, Cheyenne Wolford of Custom Concrete Specialists, John Fallowich, Fallowich Construction Services, Jim Cover, Nebraska Department of Labor On-Site Consultation Group, Danny Arroyo, WorkSafe Consulting, and Building Omaha, a collaboration between the Nebraska Electrical Contractors Association and the IBEW. Thank you, one and all. You are true believers in workplace safety and health, and I appreciate you. All right, let's get into today's episode. No uh, no video today. I've uh, just coming coming with audio this morning. I woke up this morning, and I have a terrible blemish on my face, and so I begged Cam uh, not to record this with video. I don't know if that happens to you. I Actually, I, right on the bridge of my nose, you know the one I'm talking about, I... Uh, I wore sunglasses for the last four or five days, and I typically don't wear sunglasses. I'm not a sunglasses person necessarily. I don't like the effect of sunglasses necessarily, so I typically don't wear them. But we were out in Colorado this weekend. My wife, Tanya, and my boys, Kent and Nick, and I took a four- or five-day vacation out in Colorado this weekend. And I don't know if you under, you knew this, but there is a mandatory uniform in Colorado where you, you must have on a trucker hat, the sunglasses, some kind of tech pants and shirt and hiking boots or shoes. And so, you know, being a follower, man, I wore the sunglasses and um, got a big zit on my nose. So anyway, not that you need to know that, but just audio today. Thanks for joining me. I hope you had a good week. Um, I hope hope your people are safe. And, um, you know, for those of you that had a difficult week, uh, hang in there. It will get better, I promise you. Uh, just a couple of things. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the trip. I've got a couple of other just little tidbits, and then I've, I've actually been reading. I don't know if you were aware that I could read or not, having spent so much time in the government, but I can read. And I've got an interesting book I've been reading I'd like to talk a little bit about. No guests today, so just you and me. So we'll go, we'll go from there. Um, as I mentioned, we were out in Colorado. Uh, beautiful, beautiful place. My older son, Kent, lives in Colorado. So we spent five days out there. Uh, just sightseeing, looking around. We went to Ure. You know where that is, Cam? Ure, uh, Telluride, right over by Telluride, kind of kind of southwest Colorado, I believe. Um, Silverton, down in that area. Gorgeous. Uh, we hiked. You know, we visited these little towns. We took the gondola over to Ski Village over in Telluride. Freaked me out. I learned something about myself. Um I know that I'm afraid of heights, but until you're in Colorado and you are exposed to heights constantly, you don't realize how how paralyzing this can be. I, you know, I, I get on top of grain elevators. I go out on platforms and things like that. I've actually been on tower cranes a few times, things of that nature here in Nebraska. Scary, but in Colorado, it is petrifying. I mean, every hike we took, there is exposure you know, we went and visited Box Canyon outside of Ure, and you have to walk over this expanded metal bridge that's about 500 feet above the roaring river below that looks like a shoestring, you know? I mean, but the worst experience of all, we drove from Ure on the million-dollar highway down to Silverton. So Ure is just in this canyon. You drive in. I think from the north, and it's completely encircled in, in mountains. It's gorgeous. But there is this little highway that runs through the mountain on the way south, 
down to Silverton called the Million Dollar Highway. It is just, you know, just road carved into the side of the mountain. No guardrails, no protection. It is the inside lane right up against the rock. There is a yellow line in the middle, and then there's a white line on the edge of the outside lane, and then there's nothing. I mean, literally nothing. There's no shoulder. There's no guardrail. And even in some places, and this thing winds through the mountains, of course, because you can't go straight in the mountains. And so there were places where the white line was starting to undermine and decay. I mean, it it was. And so my son, my 24-year-old son, Kent, is driving, and he's got a decent vehicle. You know, I mean, I'm not suggesting it's necessarily roadworthy, but it's a decent vehicle. I'm in the passenger seat, and we are driving up this pass, and I'm just looking out over the exposure. I mean, I'm not even, it's not, over, you know, look out over the edge and down. It's just look down because there is nothing there, white line and nothing. I've got a hold of that little handle on the top, you know, of the car. I'm squeezing it so hard my, my knuckles are white, and I am leaning to the inside thinking that if I just lean in, we might not roll off into the abyss. It was, it was horrible, man. And uh, it was about a 30-minute drive to get up to the area between the mountain peaks where there's lakes and, you know, you know flatlands to some degree and that kind of thing. But I was really bothered by the fact that, that I am so afraid of heights. And there were semi-trucks driving this road. I mean, they have to deliver shit down to Silverton. So, you know, tanker trucks driving this road, and I, I could barely stand it. So um, I don't know if you have fears like that. I mean, I, I have a terrible fear of public speaking that has always been crippling. I have a terrible, this heights thing has really heightened in my perception. And so I was listening to some dude on a podcast, Andrew Huberman. You know this guy? He's some kind of a neuroscientist, and he was talking about um, fears and things like that. And, and one of the things he suggested was this is like kind of a an epinephrine response, you know, an adrenaline response. And so one way to try to temper that response is to subject yourself to adrenaline and epinephrine periodically and try to become more accustomed to that. And the one thing he said that you can do to, to, to work on that is cold showers, so I've been taking cold showers every morning in an attempt to temper my response to these fear issues like heights. And all I know is I just, now I hate showers. And so I don't know if that's going to help or not, man, but you know, it, it was really an eye opener to me how almost crippling it was. I mean, it wasn't like I was just like whining. It was like, oh my God, I can't breathe type stuff. So anyway, get out to Colorado and enjoy the experience. That's you know. That's my advice. Um, Number two, so I was driving um, to a client, Liquid Trucking. I work with a company called Liquid Liquid Trucking in town here. I drove down there on Wednesday to do my uh, monthly visit, and I noticed one of my tires was low. I I drive a car that has those little um, uh, tire pressure indicators, and it, it showed me that one of my tires was low. And so I'm at a trucking facility, so I pull around to one of the bays and ask one of the guys, he fills up my tires, no problem, drive home. Yesterday I got up to go to a meeting and I'm driving to get coffee and and that same tire is really low now. It's down into the warning indicator, you know, where the yellow light comes on instead of the white light that it's just low. 
So I'm like, oh, shit. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to down to like 20 pounds. I think they're supposed to be 34, 35 pounds normally. And so I go from my home straight to Discount Tire. Okay, this is, this is the place that I've gone for years for tires. I don't, Discount Tire is not a sponsor of this program, but they are amazing. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been to Discount, maybe you're a Jensen guy, maybe you go to Tire World or wherever the hell you go, but Discount Tire is one of those places that has my loyalty because they are, the customer service is incredible. I don't know if that is true of every location in the country or just the place where I go, but I every time I go there, the customer service is remarkable. And customer service is one of those things that we have become accustomed to not experiencing. I mean, you go so many places where the customer service is lackluster, you know, unenthusiastic. I mean, most places, I don't even... I wouldn't even call it customer service. If you get served, you're lucky, you know. You go to Discount Tire. Now, this is 186th and Center Street in Omaha, Nebraska, so that might be a long drive for some of you. But every time I go there, they are um, courteous. They are attentive. I pulled in. I was like, hey, man, I, you know, I got a problem with my tire. I work with this guy named Jay. I know, I've known him for years. He's the, the first guy I interacted with. He came out, looked at my tire. We'll get it in, no problem. You know, they take care of that stuff free. You know, unless you have to replace the tire, it's free, man. He, you know, he goes, oh, we'll get it in. We'll take care of it. This is twice that I have been going to important meetings. The first time was like a doctor's appointment. I had a low tire. I, I drive onto construction sites all the time. I pick up shit in my tires all the time, unfortunately. And they took care of it almost immediately. I was back on the road. So, I just want to, you know, I just want to say thank you to Jay and, and the good people at Discount Tire over on Center Street. Man, um, I, I, I wish everybody was like that. I, I know I'm probably not like that with my clients, but it's a reminder that customer service is important and it, and it generates loyalty and um, it just, just makes life better, man. So um, thanks to those guys over there. Whew, okay. Um, that's it. And again, I'm not even not, I'm not even looking for sponsorship. I'm still hoping smart water will sponsor me at some point, but they've got that other guy, so they're not calling, but yeah, that, that was a really great experience and I appreciate it. So the topic for the day, um, like I said, this is just kind of a food for thought episode. Um, I've been reading a little bit. I typically don't read nonfiction. I'm typically a fiction guy. I need my I need my literature to take me somewhere and get me out of my normal life routine. But I was watching YouTube a few weeks ago, and I must have searched something safety-related because now the, the algorithm is populating safety stuff for me. And I saw this dude named Todd Conklin, Ph.D., and he was speaking to some group interestingly, about safety and human performance. And I watched a few of his episodes, and it was interesting. And so I got on the Amazon and ordered one of his books. And so I've been reading this book. And some of you may be familiar with Dr. Conklin. Um, Interesting guy, good speaker. I thought the content was interesting. So the book that I purchased was The Five Principles of Human Performance. I'll send out a picture of it with my LinkedIn update or something. But interesting book. It's, you know, it's probably not um, Steinbeck or Hemingway, but it's not bad. Written reasonably well. 
He seems fairly articulate. He's obviously a very intelligent guy. And so I'm just going to throw a few things out today, and then uh, maybe I can get some feedback from you if you've read the book or if you have some experience with some of these concepts or topics, and we can start a little dialogue about some of these things. But so uh, the hierarchy of control, if you're a safety person, you're familiar with the hierarchy of control. This is how it is recommended. This is a NIOSH document, but it is recommended that we approach the control of hazards using this hierarchy. Um, some of these things would be considered more effective, others less effective, and so we want to work from most effective down to least effective. And so, and in fact, OSHA requires this when we're trying to control air or noise exposures, things like that, they expect us to follow the hierarchy of control. It's not an option. So again, I'm just reiterating something you already know, but the hierarchy goes as follows. From most effective, we would just want to eliminate the hazard. Okay, if we identify an air contaminant or something like that, ideally we would just eliminate that hazard. Is it really something that's necessary for us to perform our work activities? If not, let's get rid of it physically remove the hazard from the work environment. Uh, next effectiveness uh, or next level of effectiveness would be substitution. You know, the replace the hazard with something less hazardous certainly makes sense. And in, a, in the chemical world, we can probably do that at this point. I know that many of the old solvents and degreasers and things that we used to use industrially have been replaced with much less hazardous uh, sub substitutes. And then engineering controls. Everybody's pretty familiar with this. We're typically talking about isolating our employees from the hazard using something like ventilation or some other containment strategy, isolation strategy. Administrative controls then would be next where we change the way people work. So we do things like rotate people through the hazard. So uh, noise, for example, if you have employees exposed to noise, uh, high levels of noise, maybe it would be better to expose them for a shorter duration. And so maybe we, you know, maybe we have one group of people that can work around that noise for four hours and we've determined that that's a safe level. And then a second group might take that noise burden for the second four hours or even work practice controls. I know when we're talking about dust exposure, one of the common ways of controlling dust is using water. And so that would be a work practice control, you know, uh, keep the dust levels down using a water system or some water application. Last and least is PPE, uh, personal protective equipment. Seems to be something that we go to pretty quickly oftentimes, but in the hierarchy, <clears throat> PPE, PPE is the last resort. I mean, if you put somebody into PPE, safety glasses, respirator, hearing protection, whatever that is, the one thing that we know is that the hazard is still there, man. You are still working in proximity to the hazard, and now we become very dependent upon the employee using the PPE correctly, selecting the right PPE, things like that. So the hierarchy of control that we're all familiar with. So having said that, I'm going to go to the book. Again, Five Principles of Human Performance. And in the book, they're talking about um, the four principles of safety differently. So uh, this guy, Sidney Decker, who's probably a real famous guy, and I just don't, you know, I, maybe I've met Sidney. If so, I apologize. If he died in the 1800s, it seems unlikely. But um, he was basically in favor of changing the way that we view safety. He referred to this as safety differently. We've been talking about that on this podcast 
literally for the three years we've been doing it about working safely rather than safety, thinking of it as as an activity rather than as this thing that we add on to our workplaces. And so the four principles of safety differently, as Mr. Decker has identified them. Number one, safety is not defined by the absence of accidents, but by the presence of capacity. Okay, we have always, and I think historically, we've always viewed safety as the absence of accidents. If we don't have an accident, we don't have an accident. If we don't have an accident, we are working safely. Maybe, we've also said, yeah, maybe you're working safely. Maybe your systems are good, or maybe you've just been lucky. Sometimes there's really no way to differentiate those two. We just made it through the day. Everybody's got their fingers, so that was a good day. So I like that. Safety is not defined by the absence of accidents, but by the presence of capacity. Capacity would be the ability to deal with an accident and have a good outcome. You know, something that we have done in our workplaces to ensure that if we do have a bad incident or an experience, the outcome is less severe. So I I think that's what we're referring to as capacity. Number two, workers aren't the problem. Workers are the problem solvers. Uh, This is a big concept. I think we all struggle with this a little bit. I think it's easy for us to assume that we need to fix the employees. If only my employees would do the right thing, we wouldn't have these accidents. And I think as, as they go on to discuss in the book, that, that is an old way of viewing this. So workers aren't the problem. Workers are the problem solvers. I know that in my experience as a consultant, when I'm out on the floor talking to employees, I get a lot of information. They tell me things about the work that they do and how they think they could do it better or the problems that they face that haven't been addressed. Uh, this is huge. I, I know that my employers, as a consultant, I spend a lot of time on the floor watching observing and interacting with employees. And I I know there have been times where my employers have said, God, what the hell are we paying this guy for? He just stands out there and talks to people, you know? And, um, but I I think that's really critical in identifying solutions to our problems. And so that seems to be something that Mr. Decker is referring to. Number three, and there's only four of these, so don't panic. Number three, we don't constrain workers in order to create safety. Okay, rules, regulations, etc. We don't constrain them in order to create safety. We ask workers what they need to do work safe, safely, reliably, and productively. What do they need? And so, you know, rather than lay a ton of rules and expectations and requirements and regulations, and you hear this all the time. I mean, I, I hear this, man. We are overwhelmed with rules. We have all these requirements, etc., Ask the workers what they need in order to do the work safely, reliably, and productively, and start there. I think sometimes we lay rules on people that just overwhelm them. I know they occasionally overwhelm me, so that's an interesting point. And then number four, safety doesn't prevent bad things from happening. Safety ensures good things happen while workers do work in complex and and adaptive work environments. Um, We'll talk more about that in this second part, but that's an interesting concept as well. Safety doesn't prevent bad things from happening. It just ensures good outcomes, okay? Our employees are in complex work environments. They are very adaptive. If you walk through a lot of workplaces, as I do, you see the employees adapting to the work environment. You know, they are doing things. They are performing work in ways 
that may not have been intended, but they have identified ways to adapt to this environment. I remember um, going to uh, a logging uh, saw operation up in northwest Nebraska one time. They didn't have any safety controls in place, but they didn't have injuries. And I watched them work. And again, this could be purely just luck, or it could be adaptation. And in this case, you know, these uh, employees had all been there for quite a length of time. They were all very experienced, and they had developed, they had adapted to that work environment. They were working around saws that were moving. Uh, They were working around unguarded saws. They were working around big logs and, you know, heavy materials. And yet they had found a way to adapt to that environment. And so I think that that adaptation is one of the one of the strengths of our employees, and what we need to do as employers is tap into that and find ways that we can implement controls that won't hinder the employees, but will add a layer of protection in the event that we do have bad things happen. And so those are the four principles of safety differently, you know, as penned by the, Mr. Decker, Sidney Decker. Kind of interesting. So... Uh, my new friend here, Todd Conklin, goes on to describe the five principles of human behavior. And I think when we, in the context of the hierarchy of controls, knowing that eliminating the hazard is ideal, that's our first choice, substituting less hazardous materials or activities, number two, et cetera, et cetera, in that context, and, the, and these principles of safety differently, when, when Dr. Conklin talks about the five principles of human performance, it all kind of puts it into perspective. It's interesting. So, again, I'm going to read from his so I don't, I don't misquote anything. Number one, error is normal. Even the best people make mistakes. We know this to be true. Error is normal. Your best employee makes mistakes. Your worst employee likely makes mistakes. Everybody in between makes mistakes. We've all done that. We've all done things where we're like, oh, shit, that could have really been bad, you know, or, you know, you drop the knife while you're cutting something for dinner and you reach for it, you know, or anything like that. Those reactive things. Um, they are unintentional oftentimes. They are certainly not malicious. We're not, we're not doing them necessarily to violate rules or break rules, but, but employees make mistakes. We know this. And so, I think as far as human performance goes, when we are looking at controls in our workplaces, we need to look at that knowing that our employees are going to make mistakes. So where can they get hurt? Where can we have bad outcome incidents in our workplace? Knowing that they're going to mess up at some point unintentionally, um, I think if we look at our workplace from that perspective rather than for the, from the perspective of if my employee, employees just didn't screw shit up, We wouldn't have these problems, right? So error is normal. Number two, blame fixes nothing. If you blame employees for these bad outcomes, you've done nothing to improve the situation. Nobody gains from that. Nobody benefits from that, really. We don't get better as a result of that. I think that is Dr. Conklin's message here. I have reviewed... I have conducted and or reviewed hundreds of incidents over the last 35 years. That's what you do with OSHA. That's what you do as a consultant oftentimes, unfortunately. And I review these incident investigation reports 
And oftentimes, the finding is that the employee did something wrong. The employee did something stupid. The employee didn't follow the policy. The employee violated the rule, whatever that is, you know. I told Doug not to stick his head there. And Doug stuck his head there. And so my finding is Doug is stupid. And my, my corrective action is I told Doug not to stick his head there. I'm just, that's hypothetical, of course. You know? So anyway, um, blame fixes nothing. And I think when we go into this accident investigation, incident investigation, we need to go in from the perspective that something in our system failed. You know, my buddy Aaron Cerrone says this all the time from a leadership standpoint. When we have an incident or a bad outcome, the first question should not be who screwed up or what did that idiot do this time. The question should be how did we fail our employee? What did we not do that we should have done that would have prevented this? I think that's an incredible message. Number three, learning and improving are vital. Learning is deliberate. Um, From these incidents, from near misses or near hits or close calls, whatever you call them, or even incidents, we must learn and improve. Okay, learning and improving are vital. And we certainly all agree with that. I don't think, and, and that's kind of the reason why at the twilight of my career, I'm still having people on the podcast that I learn from every time. Um, I'm still watching YouTube videos about safety. I'm still reading these books, even though I'd rather be reading some fiction about, you know, some retired Navy SEAL killing a bunch of bad people. You know, that's where I get my pleasure typically. But learning is vital, and it must be deliberate. We must have an intention to try to improve and learn. So that's number three. Number four, context influences behavior. Systems drive outcomes. Context influences behavior. This is really a deep one. When I go into workplaces and the leadership is not driving a culture of working safely, um, it's very visible because the employee, you know, that's the context that these employees work within, and that's what we get, okay? If it doesn't mean anything to the ownership, to the management team, it certainly doesn't mean much to the employees. Um, again, they might adapt so that they can survive the work environment, but if, you know, using following the procedures or using the controls or using the PPE as a last resort, whatever that is, if, if that not, is not con- contextual in our organizations, that's gonna, it's going to have a negative impact on the employees. So I love that context influences behavior. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And then finally, the fifth principle of human performance, how you respond to failure matters. How leaders act and respond counts. So again, I think that we could look at that from a blame standpoint. If our initial response is to blame someone or seek to blame, blame someone, if our incident investigations have that inherent bias that Somebody did something wrong, and we're going to identify who that is and fix them. I think we've missed something, or that is going to have a negative impact on our employees. How you respond to failure matters. If the question is, as Aaron would say, how did we fail and how can we do better, I think the result is going to be much better. Okay, so 
I would love to hear your, your feedback or comments on that. You can reach me at my email address, DougAtFletcherSafety.com. You can probably make comments. When I will send this out. We'll send a notice of this out through LinkedIn. You can make comments on that. But I would be interested to hear your thoughts on this. I, I'm a believer in most of these things. I think that uh, Dr. Conklin and his, his uh, colleagues are onto something. I mean, probably not. This is probably not revolutionary breakthrough. It's kind of stuff that we've been talking about, but they certainly um, have reduced it to writing in a, in a way that captures most of the concepts that we've been talking about. The big one, perhaps, is error is normal. I mean, we are going to make mistakes in our work environments. There are lots and lots of potential hazards in most work environments, and we have to approach them from the position that we know our employees are going to make mistakes. I marked a couple more things in the book. I haven't finished the book yet. I'm about halfway through. I marked a couple of things that I wanted to to share, and then I'll wrap it up so you can actually uh, try to digest and process some of this stuff. But So here's one. Human workers are the most important part of your production operations, whereas they are also the least reliable part of your system right? They are the most critical part, but they do not have machine reliability, okay? As we've just discussed, they are going to make mistakes. Workers are amazing at handling variability. They just can't reliably handle boredom and repetition. They hate inefficiencies, and they get offended by overly invasive supervision, (laughs) okay? I love that statement on a lot of levels, Workers are amazing at handling variability. I see that all the time. Our workers rise to the occasion. When the system is failing them, they oftentimes uh, adapt. They make it work. I mean, when you think about it, the vast majority of times our processes work, our systems work, maybe even in spite of those systems because our employees are adaptive. You know, every now and then there will be this... um, perfect storm of events, you know, we'll have an error, an employee will make an error, they will even violate a rule unintentionally perhaps. Hell, maybe intentionally, maybe they, they believe that they can be more efficient um, in, in spite of that rule, whatever that is, but they are certainly um, a wild card in this process. And so, again, looking at fixing the employees, I don't think is the answer. I, I think that's a, and then this Um, they hate inefficiencies. They hate having to do a bunch of shit that doesn't get them anything from a production standpoint, right? That drives them nuts. We all know that's true. And they get offended by overly invasive supervision. Just let me do my job, man. You know, I have experienced that in my working lifetime. Um, there was one other that I thought was really interesting and then I'll get off this reading thing. Um, If everyone makes mistakes and human error is normal, then the premise is that if you design and create a process that demands perfection from an imperfect and normal human operator and your designed process fails because of an operator error or mistake, this failure is the product of the system design and not the human operator. (coughs) I love that concept as well, right? We design a system that is imperfect but requires perfection from the operator, we are doomed to fail. You know, error is normal. Our employees are going to make mistakes. If success counts on them not making mistakes, we have set them up for failure. 
So, again, I think that's a really interesting concept. So, anyway, I'll finish the book. Maybe it's, maybe it's a bunch of crap. When I get to the end, maybe I'll realize, oh, that was horrible. But I just think, I think those are interesting ways to think about safety, think about human performance. Um, I think intuitively many of us know these things to be true, and we just need to um, implement them, you know, let them creep into our culture, let them infiltrate our process development, that type of thing. So, again, um, yes, I do read. <laughs> As you can tell, I don't read well, <laughs> but I do read. I, have to, I was sounding out the words, and my finger was tracking along each word as I was reading, which is another reason why we don't have video today. But anyway, actually, Cam was reading it to me. So, anyway, little earpiece. Um, food for thought. Let's talk more about this. I would love to get your feedback. Um, I'm going to wrap it up for the day because now I, I have to go read the rest of the book and see and see what happens. I got to know what the does the seal kill the bad guy or not, you know. So um, I hope you have a great weekend. Keep up the good work. What you're doing is really, really important. But don't view yourself as the answer. As, as safety people, uh, we are just facilitating this process, right? We are just helping the process along. We are stepping in where we can to offer suggestions. And, but, but in large part, we are just the conduit between the employees and management. We are just bringing that information forward and helping the employees who we know to be the problem solvers get those, those thoughts and, and recommendations forward. So um, thank you very much for listening. Keep up the good work, and we will talk to you next week. Later. A Huda Media Production.